In my experience, conversations are best had with a glass of whiskey. Join me, Alan Kogan, as I engage in meaningful discussions while enjoying a glass of my favorite spirit. Welcome to the Kogan Conversation. Mr. George Oaks, thanks for coming on the Kogan Conversation. How's it going, man? Oh, thanks for uh, inviting me. This was a quick invite. Yeah, it was literally, we connected earlier today, and here you are. <laughs> well, it sounds like a great time. Who doesn't enjoy whiskey and conversations? <laughs> well, that, yeah, that's that's the whole thing. Is I, I wanted to to create a, a an avenue for myself to just whether it be therapeutic or just to have fun or meet new people, or just sit down and enjoy a, a glass of whiskey and have a conversation about whatever topic. And uh, I, I came across your profile, and we connected, and I thought, hey. Uh, why not sit down and have a glass of whiskey? Because whiskey's great. <laughs> it's an amazing, it's uh, what the liquid from the gods, as they used to say. Yeah, exactly. As I still say. <laughs> <laughs> so before I go any further, tell me about yourself, introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What do you do? Where are you? All that good stuff. So my name's George Oaks, as he said, I'm originally from Boston. Try not to hold that against me. I'm sorry. Uh, I currently live in Glasgow, but that's just because of a long journey. I joined the Marines out of high school, did a tour in Afghanistan. I was an electrical engineer. Uh, once I got out of that, I tried the reservist thing, which they do not get the credit they deserve because that is not an easy life for any National Guardist. They, even though we call you weekend warriors, it's <laughs> it's more than a weekend. Uh, after I got out of the Marine Corps, I did the same thing that all Marines do, which is like, I'm going to get a degree in criminal justice. So I got an associates in it. I got really into like veteran advocacy because I worked within the VA school education area, uh, then transferred to another school, then transferred to another and finally got my bachelor's in criminal justice, the minor in sociology, worked as a security guard for defense country for a little while. Uh, so I got my hands back into the DOD for a while. And then I had one of my friends here in Scotland say, hey, I'm doing a master's at the University of Glasgow. Next thing I know, I'm like, oh, okay, like I'll look. And I was browsing through their catalog and I saw something called human rights and I'm like, I went to war for that thing. I took a course on that. I'm going to go learn that, bring it back to America and teach everyone. <laughs> so here I am now that I just graduated two months ago, living in Scotland, loving it, even though I didn't get to travel as much as I wanted to. Right. And I am more confused on human rights than I ever was before. <laughs> and that's where I started my podcast, the Rights and Wrongs podcast to try and explain my confusion to other people. Okay. Yeah, because I so I obviously because we connected today, I haven't had uh, time or the due diligence to 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 listen or, or look into your podcast. So, uh, is is it was it just bred out of your interest for what you've learned, or? So it was originally I was talking to one of my fellow students, um, and she's I think got like three masters at this. Time. I'm not going to use her name for obvious reasons, uh, but we were talking about that, and it's just like I was sitting in these classrooms, and it is really strange. Because Americans like, oh, we're worldly. We're worldly. No, we're not. I was sitting in this classroom and I was one of three Americans, the only male American in the classroom because in human rights, there's very few men to begin with. Right. I thought I was only a veteran, but I actually connected with a Royal Marine in that class, but he was from another course. But within my group, like it's very strange being a white cisgendered male and being the minority, like white cisgendered male American veteran. And like, I am the minority in an area, which was a very, I would make a joke and I'm like, oh, I thought the people don't understand that joke or I'd make a statement. I'm like, oh, I'm in trouble. Right. Interesting. So why Scotland? You're a whiskey drinker. Why, why are you oh, asking? That, okay. <laughs> 
that's that's that I, I take it back i know why scotland but why scotland why glasgow university is it is it i i guess i i know that they're i mean is it is it some kind of uh criminal justice empire that they have over there or human rights so it, you're close uh basically the first part is like my family my mom's side of the family comes from scotland she would there were mcisaacs under my mom's maiden name which they were forced into Nova Scotia during the clearings. My dad's side of the family came over in the Mayflower. There's so my family's been in America forever, but we've had a fascination and a strong connection to Scotland, which is most Americans seem to have a connection to their colonial roots. Yeah, yeah. Even though we are, have nothing really in common with those nations, which is kind of strange. <laughs> you learn living in Europe, right? Uh, so I've always loved Scotland. Always been fascinated, fascinated by the history. So that was one thing. So it's like okay, my friend was Scottish, and she was like, "Go check out the University of Glasgow." And one, it had a human rights program, which I've never seen before. And it's not very common even in Europe, but it is far more common because they actually have it in Europe. But University of Glasgow is number 64, I think, right now in the world of ranked schools. So they're up on there with like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Oxford. Like it's it was founded in 1410. Wow. So it's an old school. Uh, but the other reason I decided to come here is I was looking at going to state schools in Massachusetts, where I'm from, in similar masters. If I wanted to get a master in criminal justice or sociology, I was looking at dropping just on tuition alone close to like $150,000 for a three-year program. It was 18000 quid for my program here. Ugh. And that's like 22000 US dollars. So pay 150000 go to a state school, which some state schools are great, or pay 25000 and go to a world-ranked school. Right. It's kind of like the decisions made for you. And also I get to go to another country that speaks English. Eh, I just have to say they speak English. We don't. Right. Uh, but no, it, it's a, and just the experience. And like if I'm going to study human rights and international politics, which is the full thing, it's kind of strange studying international politics if I've only really lived in one country and visited another during an occupation. Uh, so like I don't have any views. But here I was meeting people all around the world. Interesting. Because you're overseas, how first of all, how long have you been there? I've been here, I think, now 15 months. Okay. So not for the bulk of the last four years when our United States politics have been in all disarray. Um, but yeah. in the last year, it's been pretty hectic. What What is it like for you studying over there and doing your podcast now and, and watching across the pond you know, whether we're kind of falling apart or maybe getting back together, depending on what your view is of things, not that it matters, but is it, is it a different perspective for you being an American living in a different country while this is all happening? So it's, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, cause there's a lot that I've learned living here because the first thing that I find crazy is most Europeans have a better understanding of American politics and our political system than some Americans. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm not trying to say like, oh, Americans, like like that. Like we do – we live up to some stereotypes when you like listen to stuff. It, but it's also a crazy interesting perspective on that because how little we know of their politics. And it's interesting because like I'll have my mom call me or I'll call my parents and like they're trying to give me a play-by-play -play on news of what's going on in America – because they assume I'm not getting the news here in the UK where I turn on the BBC or turn on this and I have like – we also live in the time of the internet. But it also to remember that no one's getting any news of what's going on in the UK. 
you hear something about Brexit, something about Scottish independence, something about Boris Johnson hair. And that's all Americans know about England. Big Ben, the Queen of England, popped out to say hi once and that's <laughs> it. Europeans know everything that's going on in America, like every single detail. Like they're watching the elections here and it's for good reasons and bad reasons because – it's going to sound weird and like this falls into American ecosystem, uh, egotism to a degree, but in a bad way where I'm sure you didn't hear what happened in Hungary this year. I Maybe. I hope it's Hungary. It's either Hungary or Austria. I'm sorry. I always mix those two countries up. They used to be an empire together. I believe it's Hungary. They gave all their power to their prime minister. Oh, yes. Without, yes. Yes. Like they pulled an emperor Palpatine move. Right. Yes. I am the mm-hmm. Senate. That That happened. That was, but that's the whole other thing that's crazy about it. It's that didn't make head like that was news on Twitter for like 45 minutes. Then right. Trump said something stupid. I don't remember <laughs> what it was. Uh, then it, but that's the scary thing is you have stuff like that, but it always makes me curious that if we didn't have the issues, whether or not you believe in Trump or not, like there's things going on in the United States. If we weren't trying to allocate power in both sides, seem to be shifting around stuff. And this is like, I'm a, I'm a moderate, so I see. The Democrats are doing stuff just as horribly and scary as the Republicans. Right. Uh, it's just in moderation of like, I want to say it's relative to yourself of which one's worse in that moment. But if the, our country wasn't doing this, do you think Hungary would be playing this game? Do you think North Korea would be playing these games? Do you think China would be messing around with Australia like it is out in the islands like that we don't hear about? Or, right. There's certain things, and I think that's where a huge part of what an American is, is we don't realize – we throw our weight around where it doesn't matter, but we don't pay attention and watch our steps where it does. And I think that's a huge disconnect with you. And that's one thing I've learned as an American is I'm just watching our country walk on minefields. Yeah. And they think they're tiptoeing through the daisies. And it's and they'll try and throw their weight around something without fully understanding the system. And it's kind of hard to scare a nation such as the European nation and try and throw a trade deal on them when their populace is better educated than our populace. So we're like, yeah, we're going to win this. And they're like, they're not worried about it because what we're trying is illegal or just not possible. Right. Right. So I think, I hope that answers your question. Yeah. But do you think it's because of an unwitting ignorance in America? Do you think it's just because we all we're it's so much easier in America to live in an echo chamber because then that you can watch your own news like the CNN, Fox, MSNBC, you're given and force fed a, an ideology. Whereas I'm sure overseas, it's probably more like, or is it just cultural? Do you think people culturally are different overseas that they, they want to learn about all aspects of things and therefore they're going to learn more about American politics versus an American who culturally doesn't really give a shit about anyone but themselves? Um, and not well, that I think it, ha- it has a mixture of imperialism, which I want to call post-imperial imperialism, okay. which there is a such thing. Um, and by saying that is – America, besides China and the Philippines, stuff like we didn't really colonize the way that the other powers colonized. Yet we have more military bases in foreign nations than any other nation in history. Right. If you think like America, everyone's watching what America's doing because we have a military base in Germany. We have military bases in Finland. We have military bases in Taiwan, Japan. We're building them in Australia. Like, there isn't a place that we're on. Like, so we kind of enforce our views and that's the reason they're paying attention to us because we have nukes sitting in their neighborhood. Yeah, right. Like 
they need to know what we're doing with those. Uh, so it's in their own best self-interest, but also we're a world trading power. And there is a cold war with China, whether people want to acknowledge it or not. There's still – the cold war never really ended with Russia. I think like we had a warming up period like where it just kind of like went away, but now it's coming back. We're dealing with a lot of different things. The British Empire is gone and they basically lost most of their power through their Brexit deals because they did the same thing the Americans do where they – think they have power in somewhere they don't and vote against their own best interests. But I think that has a lot to do with it. The other parts is because of colonization, we have those influences on there. But like we don't really seem to care and there's no reason for us to care as Americans about what's going on in the rest of the world because it doesn't – even though it does affect us, it doesn't nearly affect us as much as our actions affect the rest of the world. Right. Yeah, that's, I think that's a long way to say that. No, no. That, I mean it's, it's really interesting because I mean it's almost like a – it's it's a blessing and a curse in 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 many ways. I mean, I, I think it's it sucks that our imperialistic ways over the course of the last hundred years have rooted us in every single you know first world country that exists to have a military base. Obviously, there there are reasons for it when it happened, and you know we could probably argue nowadays we probably don't need to be in certain areas for sure. However, that has bred a lot of, I guess worldly connection and the uk and germany care about us more and it's a symbiotic relationship could that have existed without us being the way we were back in the day i don't know um it's well, here's an interesting fact about the german germany that i always find really interesting which i didn't really think about so much until i met a lot of germans germany was controlled by one of the worst governments we've known on human history. Right. Yet they are now one of the economic strongest nations in the world. They are one of the forefronts when it comes to society and ethics and making sure like they have make mistakes as well. Don't get me wrong. There's no perfect nation or system. But if you drop someone, if you grab someone from the 1920s and dropped them into 2020 Germany and never told them about the 1940s, I don't think they could have ever believe the Nazis had power there. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's true. But now, now look at America and look at the South. We are still have scars from a war three times longer away or about twice as long because that's about 150 years ago. And we're still suffering in America over issues of, from the Civil War, but that is an issue of difference between self-regulation, which I love how corporations love to say, well, self-regulate, America was allowed to self-regulate because we were a second-rate power, arguably a third-rate power during the Civil War. Right. So Europe didn't care about what we did. And now you're dealing with it. And I think that's part of the reason why Germany did so well is – depending on the part of Germany you're talking about. Um, but Germany has been able to recover so well is because of the rest of the people who are like, oh, no, be careful there. Oh, watch that. We try to self-regulate. We try to relegate them before World War One and mess that up with the League of Nations. But then we think uh, – but the other problem is we can't look at Germany as a complete success because, okay, that worked all right for Germany. That worked all right for Japan, even though Japan didn't get rid of all of their issues. Didn't work so great for Korea. Hasn't worked so great for Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, Liberia, Libya. The list just goes on and on of just like trying to take that model that we used on those two nations. But because we succeeded twice, we're like it has to work even though we failed 10 times over more. Right, right. 
it <clears throat> I, I mean you bring up the, the american south and that i mean obviously that touches on a lot of cultural issues that we face today and a lot of d deep divide that we have today uh a lot of things that have come back up and resurfaced because of the 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 scars that exist from slavery and all you know all that thing all the stuff that exists there but I, I have family in the South. I have family in the South that, you know, honestly, they're great people, but they also live in a different world. They live in a different echo chamber. Um, what, I mean, I know we're so culturally, culturally different from other, other countries, but is there a way that is uniquely difficult for America to navigate this division? This doesn't, well, you know. I think the first issue to begin with is I think Americans – it's very strange coming to Europe because one, you, when you move to Europe, the world seems so small because you're dealing with people from all around the world. But like my parents retired down to North Carolina because I was stationed in North Carolina. So they retired from Boston to that. But when I try to explain to my friends sometimes that like, yes, my parents live in America and if I go home to visit my sister in Boston, my parents are closer to Moscow to Glasgow than they are to – Glasgow and London. Right. Like America is so huge that you're not just covering – the reason we have such social barriers and language barriers and ideology on these echo chambers is even with the world of the internet and stuff, most of our community communication before this year that shall be forgotten, <laughs> hopefully, uh, we don't communicate as much over the internet and like it has. So hopefully this is going to stop some stuff. But the truth is you just only talk uh, – I'm sure you've been to the deep south. Yep. Where the closest town is 100 miles away. Yep. I've served with people that the first time they came across an African-American was in the military. Sure. And they brought some stereotypes with them. And it's like, yes, it was some racist things that needed to be corrected. But they didn't know any better because there was no one around to teach them any different. Besides like the television, but the TV and the internet is the same thing. You're only going to learn what you choose to watch. Right. So that – or the Google is only going to give you an answer to a question that you ask. Right, right. And then you're hoping that it's the right answer because it's not always. Yeah. So I, I hope that kind of like answer – like it's just your – it's a huge question but it's – there's no quick answer and it's just America is such a vast nation. That's one thing I've learned is that, – that, that's, that's, what's, that's what's more or less informed my own ideology and I, I – I, I try to stick, stay away from labels. I consider myself a moderate, kind of down in the middle of the road, as, as you you describe yourself. I don't. I, I think it's it's incumbent upon us to do, to criticize both or all parties when they do something wrong and applaud them when they do something good. Um, and it shouldn't be a this or that type mentality. But when it comes to the government, I I, I tend to be more libertarian than probably what's good for me, and. It's, it's because of that. I, I want local government. I want state and city and, you know, your city council, that to matter more for you. So when you have deep southern Mississippi communities that are, you know, facing real issues, the last thing that's going to help them is for a bunch of uh, elite suits in Washington, D.C. that are miles away from them who are elected by people who are from Maine and Wisconsin and Montana who have different cultural values than them uh, to, to make decisions at regulating or, or, or doing certain things that are going to change their lives. And I, whether it 
physically does it change their lives or it's just at the surface level it's the perception of changing their everyday lives or there's enough you know gas in the tank to make someone a pundit on tv you know scream democrats or republicans or you know some bullshit but you know that's that's what's informed me is that what you just said is america is so vast it's like yes we can live in the same country and be a, a united states but that does not mean that we can survive by trying to make texas look the same as california that won't work because we're different people and that's okay that's awesome you know but you're also dealing with some other issues like so you're touching on like this is the problem with the american system and it's also kind of the way that I try to explain, because well, when people ask me, like, what are human rights? It's like human rights are everything that you think human rights are. So you're completely right and you're 100% wrong at the same time. <laughs> and I feel like that's the same way with American politics because you're making some great points where you shouldn't have some suits in D.C. Or you shouldn't have people from the city making decisions for people in the deep country. That's the reason why, like, popular vote doesn't necessarily work. And that's why reason we have an electoral college. But at the same point, our electoral college is totally skewed where one vote represents 20,000 people in one place and a quarter million another. Like that's not equality either. So I think the problem is, is that both sides, and this is a problem with America, they don't realize is that we're so used to trying to choose the lesser of two evils that we're not ever just trying to be like, both options suck. Can we choose option C? Right. We just never do that. Uh, and it's another interesting thing like to look at this is you made a point about being a moderate. And this is one thing I've learned about myself and the reason I figured out that I'm a true moderate is I my friends in the South call me a bleeding heart liberal. My friends in the North think I'm a conservative. So I'm like, I think I'm on the right track of being a conservative, I think. So you, it comes to locale. But here's an interesting thing. Uh, you're the second podcast I've actually been a guest on. So thank you. Yeah. But the first one I was on with uh, was a gentleman from London by the name of Hamish who runs a Spoonful of News. And we were caught into the talk about politics and Bernie Sanders, where we see Bernie Sanders as this extremist left socialist. To them, he's a not like a moderate, medium, lukewarm politician. Right. And it's like you like we're talking about he's like anytime we talk about socialized healthcare, they're like, oh my God, communism. People talk about the UK as if it's a socialist nation. Sorry, cat was trying to knock over the whiskey. They're <laughs> uh, talking like it's a socialist nation, but yes, most people in the UK they're like we're not socialists. But then they look at our news and like how, and people are like, oh well, that, they're just strange. But they're not realizing how we look strange because we were trying to pass laws in states and some counties pass laws to arm teachers. Try to explain that to someone from Ireland. Yeah, that's yeah. well. Uh, that, I mean. It's a, it's an interesting thought thought process too, or thought exercise too. With like France, Fran, uh, French healthcare is by all accounts free, except well, any, unless it's elective or like uh, uh, plastic surgery or cosmetic or any of that. That's that's not paid for. But your basic healthcare is free. But the trade off is that you pay more up upfront in taxes, and it's it, France has a more transparent tax system when it comes to their social services. So you get charged seventy percent. I don't know if it's, I'm pulling that number out of my ass, but it's a high tax rate, but it's going for your healthcare. And therefore, if you break your leg, you go in, you get it fixed and you walk out, no worries about it, no stress about it. And the culture in France is they, they want that. They are okay with that. They're all on board. Now, France is the size of what, uh, half of Wisconsin. And you try to apply that to the entire nation of the United States when yes, at the core of all of our human existence, we want people to be, have access to healthcare, but. Does that 
do we agree that it should be applied the same way in that like, it's like, okay, we can afford it. It's hu- healthcare, a human right, like Bernie Sanders says it is, or is it more of a commodity because we're the richest country, country in the world? Can we therefore have a system that doesn't prey on people and self-regulate? Well, maybe that's not true either. So everyone throws their hands up in the air and points fingers and gets mad at each other because the conversation so, can't, can't even happen, you know? There's a lot to unpack there as well. Yes. Uh, the Sorry, first I'm... thing is, <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, you bring up a good point, talk about so, to, uh, healthcare being a human right, because it just brings up an argument because people love to use the term. So my podcast, my favorite thing is to rights and wrongs, wrongs being misconceptions and buzzwords. I love to pull apart buzzwords and a buzzword that kills me is human rights. Because yeah. whenever someone throws, it's against human rights. Are you talking about customary law? Are you talking about customary international law? Are you talking international law? Are you talking treaty? Are you talking the UDHR, which is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which we did sign, but it's a declaration, so it has no physical power. Sorry, anyone that's pointed at the Declaration of Independence, that's from three governments ago. And it, it has no power over the thing. It's, it's a good founding document, but... Right. <laughs> just because we pulled over the things from the declaration of independence into the constitution doesn't mean the declaration of independence is a legal document i i, I there's a huge misconception there yep but one of the human it is in certain areas where healthcare is a human right but it says in i think even the edhr you have to have access to healthcare. define access access is you can buy it um the other thing which is a huge thing when this conversation happens is People are crunching the numbers wrong. And this is a root problem with Americans overall. And I I was guilty of this before I did my master's as well. We don't understand how to conduct research. Right. And we don't understand how to read research. Right. Uh, That's the whole other thing is because people look and they're trying to do the math. It's like, oh, if my healthcare costs this much right now for my taxes, plus the copay and stuff like that, they think that's how much their taxes are going to be. However, most of that pay in those fees and stuff are there because of weird laws that you get away from the government because the government can now tax them for charging you more. But if the government's the one buying those drugs wholesale, those pharmaceutical companies aren't going to be able to charge $700 for something they created for $0.07. Cents. Right. The, the government is frugal and people want to argue this. The not, like You're about to be under TRICARE. You're about to be under the military health care. Yep. They negotiate. Do you think they pay – that $300 surcharge on an EpiPen? God, no. Hell no, they don't charge that. So they're not taking that X factor of when we're going as a uh, – if the government's the one buying the stuff and the government also regulates what is a monopoly in trade and what is a fair deal, the government's going to do what it's always going to do, what's in its best interest. And if it's doing it for our best interest, most of that stuff is pharmaceutical stuff. Mm-hmm. That's where bloated your bills come from. <clears throat> also, it muscles that four thousand dollar ambulance ride. Do you need to? I'll take an Uber. I'm sorry, like, <laughs> an Uber is already ten times what it would to cost to drive yourself. Yeah. For like a to say a ten dollar ride, that's already ten times more. It would cost you a dollar to drive yourself. Four thousand dollars. That's your timing, like to the an apostrophe. Like that's just ridiculous so they're not going to allow you charge that and the other argument that i always find interesting and something i've always found fascinating is the three biggest occupations i found that aren't part of the pharmaceutical companies or a lobbyist or anything like that that are against socialized health care are always firefighters law enforcement and military personnel military your housing's paid for 
Yep. Your food's paid for. Your healthcare's paid for. You get a house whether or not you're married. Your size of your house is dependent on having your kids. You get better pay and better housing benefits off your status and your rank. I'm sorry, but that's basically Karl Marx to a T. That is socialism. <laughs> the benefits you're trying to push is socialism. Um, law enforcement, people are going – people make the argument all the time, well, why should I have to pay if I'm perfectly healthy for someone else that's sick? And that's the argument you hear all the time. I have friends that are law enforcement officers. I'm sure you have friends that are law enforcement officers. Yep. All of us, we make more money than people that are in the lower communities. We're paying more taxes and those taxes are going into law enforcement. We're less likely to pay for – we're less likely coming from upper middle class and stuff like that. We're less likely to call the police, but we're paying more money towards the police. Why aren't you complaining about that? Because you're paying for them to go into those. You're paying for the cops to go over there. They're the ones using them. Right. They're the ones more likely to use the fire department and the fire departments and police don't charge. Well, they don't find – if it's for a legitimate reason, they do not charge or fine. So trying to use that logic to an ambulance ride, you've basically – We've already accepted this for two out of the three emergency services. Why can't we just cover it on the third? That's, and that's my argument to it. That that's and that's a very good argument. It's a very good point, and, it, and it's it's more eloquent than I've heard any Democrat or even Bernie Sanders himself state. And I think that's part of the problem is that you. I think we get so stuck in the buzzwords and the trying to appease the party and the and the base that you're trying to get elected under is that you can't have an honest conversation and and distill all of the information in an eloquent way that will be attractive to voters. What you just described sounds like common sense, but I mean, look at criminal justice. Uh, law enforcement, of course, is part of that, but I used to work in a nonprofit, a pretrial uh, uh, agency where I was a case manager. I, I, I helped people who were on the front end. And the more money that goes into the front end or even back end probation officers and helping people with mental health or addiction issues, helping reduce recidivism, while that might cost more money at the tax dollar level, it saves us tax dollars from having all these people going in and out of the system over and over again. It, it, it helps be more efficient on crime rather than just being tough on crime. I think the argument, though, that comes up is that people would rather have, rather than the government being uh, the facilitator of all this, they want the government to get out of the way and they want for nonprofits and social entrepreneurs to do it and, and to donate and to be a part of it. So you have, take away the regulations for ambulance drivers, allow people like you and me to start up a, an ambulance service or, or an Uber service for emergency services and charge less than the hospital charges. And that now... There's a competition, and that competition drives the price down. The problem, though, is then who who are they accountable to? So there's a bunch of devil's advocacy that goes on in my mind because I don't know what the right answer is. I think there's a mix of both. No, you know? That's right. When you said that, I'm like, who are they answerable to? Who's handling the training? Um, because the problem is I can make – when people make that argument, if you open it up to the nonprofits and the non-government organizations to handle it, it will be a perfect system. We've already done that in one industry we do not talk about. Firearms. Yes. Yeah. The NRA has a monopoly on instructions. Like, because I have my license from Massachusetts. Like, mm. the, people also get confused about duality of politics. I'm pro Second Amendment, but if you don't have a license, I'm sorry, like, my state bans a lot of guns. Well, did you look into why they ban the guns? The assault rifle ban, I don't agree with, but certain guns they don't allow in because Massachusetts is where firearm. We – I always find this argument funny when I talk to my friends out of the South and they're like, the self arise gun because we have both all the guns. We make them all. We don't have to buy them. They're right there. In the <laughs> right. But 
Massachusetts does have Smith and Wesson, where uh, Winchester comes from Connecticut, Johnson comes from Rhode Island, Six Hours in New Hampshire, like where work guns come from. So like Massachusetts, when you look at a lot of stuff, I know this is going to strange tangent, they won't allow guns in that are subpar. Like I buy only Smith and Wesson just because I buy like, to buy antique guns. Like my first one that I sold to a buddy of mine before I moved to the UK because I can't bring it was a discontinued DEA revolver. Okay. But if I can't get those parts because they're discontinued, I call Smith and Wesson because I needed a part. They're like, oh, no problem. We'll manufacture it and send it right to you because that's a Massachusetts requirement. If you don't meet that requirement, Massachusetts doesn't want you to sell it to them because if you have a dangerous firearm or a firearm that has a potential of breaking and you can't get something or it fails us, like they don't want it in their state because they want to protect you, the customer, which is their citizen. Uh, but they're going back to the NRA, even in Massachusetts, even though most Massachusetts people don't like the NRA because they're putting a lot of money against goal, which is gun owner Alliance league. Cause we like the fact that we have licenses. I'm sure like you've been around firearms all your life and you've probably been to a range and there's that one idiot with an AK holding it sideways, yep. spraying and praying. And you just want to move three aisles over. <laughs> we don't have that problem in Massachusetts. Cause if you don't have a license, you can't even buy a gun or get into a range. Right. Which I can bring friends over and like show and like do them to the training. Like, and there's a proper procedure for it, but it's like a car. If we, so many people die with a car, you have to license, register it, insure it. A firearm is a tool for whether hunting or sport. I enjoy just shooting paper targets. I just enjoy killing paper. Yeah. But even so, I have to be aware it's it's a deadly machine. It, it is a weird regulation on that. But going back, sorry, going back to the NRA, we're <laughs> talking about how you open up situations where, oh, we won't put a federal regulation on it. We'll let the states decide and the community decide. Well, the NRA came in and they are the de facto right now, de facto when it comes to firearm instruction. Right. But they also take that money and turn around it and use it towards lobbyist groups to try and get rid of licensing. And I don't think those that are the de facto of training then also get to decide how the training goes, which is a dangerous rule because they're like, oh, we're the trainers. We know what we're talking about. You don't need those regulations on that firearm. You don't need this. And like, luckily, we have the ATF, which has a lot of power in the United States. But that's where I look. And I don't think a lot of people that are on that side, they might not understand that part of American firearm history or culture. See, and, and I I agree. But I mean, my, my, my ears perked me. You said ATF. I, I hate the ATF. Because the ATF has a lot of arbitrary regulations on guns that they clearly do not know what gun is. Uh, they like you have a brace on a, a long nose, a, a long barrel pistol, and now that's considered a rifle, even though it shoots a twenty-two round. That's so. Like the, the, uh, the ATF is just another government agency that I think has good and bad aspects, like every government yeah. agency. And I think that that's true across the board. But I think is there a way to rather than saying that, well, because of the NRA does this, therefore the allowing the government to get out of the way and have social entrepreneurs and nonprofits to rise up and do whatever, that's that's bad because what the NRA has proven. Or is the correct answer to stop their ability to lobby and take money out of politics and maybe the NRA would have competition and therefore that would be an answer? Are there is there a deeper root of the issue where the, you know the government the government has a lot of arbitrary barriers that don't allow you and I to start our own ambulance company versus, and we could still be held to accountable to, 
you know, the American Medical Association or, you know, everyone who buys into the social construct of, you know, who is in charge of what is good medicine? How do you become a doctor? You have to go to, uh, you know, there's how many colleges across the nation that you can still become a doctor at. It's not just one doctor at college that exists. You know, how, is there, how do you how do you do that without and the conversation won't well, even happen because it's, it's like it's Democrat or Republican. So you're stuck. <laughs> well, it's also you're so like you're asking really good questions. But the problem is the reason they're good questions is there should be a simple answer. But, but due to Americans being Americans, <laughs> we've convoluted the problem because right. you're talking about, oh, there's multiple different. So my sister is an ICU nurse in Boston. Okay. And she were from the area. So she wanted to, of course, work there uh, in Boston because it's one of the best places to get trained. And once you've done there, especially after this year, she can basically choose her pickings of where she works. But the crazy thing is, is a lot of people forget education is not equal in the United States. Right. So like here in the Scotland, most of the people here, their system's a lot different. Like my friend that convinced me to come over here, she started university at 16 because she applied to our university. The university's like, okay, you're got accepted to us. And they're like, that means you don't have to be in high school anymore. We're going to get you started earlier. Also, they don't do things like electives because they're like, if you're studying English, why do you need a physics degree? Like, why do you need to take physics? If you're studying criminal justice, why are you taking art or ballet? Like, it, <laughs> they, they're asking these questions. Um, you could be smart. Like, I used mine for, like, Arabic and other things that I thought would help me in my career. But that is, like, oh, just a money waster and a waste of time when you really think about your career and just creates more debt. But the problem is, I'm sure you'll notice this when you go to boot camp and stuff, but the Marine Corps requires you to have a high school diploma. You can't have a GED. If you have a GED, you have to have 15 college credits. Like you need that. And I was serving with some guys in the Marine Corps that were from some – I'm not going to name the states. I'm, trying, I'm, trying, I'm sorry to pick an answer at once. I'm sure you can think of a few. <laughs> they were confused when like I would bring up – they would be talking about something and like you screwed up PEMDAS. PEM who? PEM – like please excuse my dear upside. Like basic arithmetic issues yeah. or – you also have the issue like you're talking about Texas. I was taught the Civil War. My friends from Texas were taught the War of Northern Aggression. Yes, It's exactly. kind of hard to learn from your history if two people are learning, which you need duality, you need multiple perspectives. But I think we should both learn both perspectives, not have one side learn one and the other side learn the other because that's how you create this whole entire North versus South mentality that we still have to this day. Right, right. And well, I think – but that's – I was going to say about the licensing we were talking about, like my sister works in Boston – so you'd have to retake another test and get new licensing just to work in another county or another city. And like that's the problem. Like you're talking like, oh, let's do this. But like it's so overly chopped up and gerrymandered for lack of a better word that you'd have to cut down so much social laws. Yes. And uh, well, uh, occupational licensing is a massive problem because – you know, I, I think it's ridiculous that you can't go from a to a city or a county over and and practice the same thing that you know. Uh, or there, I don't know if you ever heard of a certificate of need laws. Uh, probably, but I don't. You can. Yeah. So, well, ambulance is a good example. There's a there's actually a, a case that's existing that 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 uh, the place that I work for. I work for a, a nonprofit um, law firm, um, but. It, it basically certificate certificate of need it's hard to say for me um certificate of need law is basically a law that requires um those who are starting a business to apply for a certificate to prove their need within the community and other uh depending on the state 
other businesses that exist in that same industry can veto, it's called a competitor's veto, veto their application and say, nope, we have this down pat, we're good, no more of those. Well, that's a direct violation of the free market allowing people to do what they want. So now you can create a monopoly or a monopoly of maybe four ambulance drivers or ambulance like Bell and- Or well, Trust, basically, yeah. Exactly. So- I think these little tiny laws that people don't know of, don't know about, that don't really have any benefit of, I, I, I can't even think of a good argument to keep that around other than. Do you want me to get you mad in like 10 seconds real quick without even thinking about we were talking about monopolies? <laughs> well, you already you already did that when you said you like the ATF. I'm kidding. Ugh. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, the, the problem with the ATF is like we can go back to that. Like the problem, the ATF, I agree, has issues. Yeah. But the other problem with the ATF is I love watching like Forgotten Weapons and like in range if you're familiar with those. Like yeah. those two guys are really know what they're talking about. But even they admit the problem with the ATF because like they are, even they say the ATF isn't good nor bad. It's just every single time someone can find out a loophole because Americans are amazing at this. <laughs> they're going to take advantage of it. So the ATF is trying to stay ahead you're right. of an industry. Like that's the reason I don't get mad at the ATF because mm-hmm. they're like – because they are, they just made like with the K fifteen lower, like the all polymer lower, and like the ATF is like kind of hesitant of it because they're like, how can someone easily manipulate this to make a machine gun? Right. And it's not the ATF being like, oh, they assume someone's going to do that, but following Americans how we are, if you can do it, we will do it. Right. And like that's the reason I don't ever really get too mad at the ATF because even they're just like, we're trying to stop another Las Vegas shooter or something like that because like they are the ones that get blamed for it at the end of the day. Yeah. How did you allow this get happen? And it's just like. And the government agency should be held accountable. But we also are the ones that create the power in the law for those. So there is a give and take when it comes to democracy. Uh, but what I was going to say, the reason you're going to get mad at me is you probably have, what, one choice of internet we're currently standing? Uh, I would th- th- three, but yeah, I mean. So most states, because of those background deals of cable companies, you might have one not counting like Dish or something like that, or Elon Musk gets his satellites up. Sure. By UK law, you have to have a minimal of five different competing providers. I could call up tomorrow and change my internet. And because of that, I pay 10 quid, which is less than $15 a month for high-speed internet. My phone bill is 10 quid, which is better than Verizon for $15. Like I'm typing over across the country. Like I'm paying 10 quid for my internet. Like to them, because it's a necessity. But also the way that they make a deal is if a company puts down fiber optics and the company puts the money down, they have a monopoly right to that and they can charge surcharge as much as they want X amount of years till the government thinks you've made your money back and then some. I think you're supposed to be able to make three times the investment you put in if if I know the math right. And at that point, it's like now you have to have that access to everyone else. Because you had your time, you made a profit. Because like that's the incentive for them to put the equipment down. But just because you put it down once, that's like basically saying like the city put the road down. Now they get to toll you no matter what, and only city people get that built it get to use it. <laughs> and that's essentially what it is with the internet. But people don't think that way. They think in old terms of capitalism, and because they're thinking so much, like they're locking themselves in. And America is loves to talk about capitalism, like we're the land of free trade. I've seen more free trade in so-called socialist nations than I've ever seen in the United States because this thing's called regulation. 
that maintain the free trade. And you can't force – and also our definition of monopoly is only at a federal level, not at a state and county. Right. But, but yeah, I, I, I would I would say that probably goes back to the cultural difference between us and a, a smaller – you know, overseas country that is a lot like everyone buys into that, that the fact that those regulations are the best to create the capitalistic democratic society that we want in America, which I, and I don't agree with capitalism being free reign, you know, capitalism, capitalism with no regulation whatsoever is just an oligarchic mess. Um, but which I think we're kind of, have an issue with but and i don't know if the answer is then for you know uh, politicians to come in and give promises like i was just having a conversation with my 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 father about the minimum wage that you know we can agree that there's a problem that people are not having a living wage it's difficult to because of things the cost of goods have and cost of living has gone up exponentially but the problem shouldn't be oh it's been 40 years that's raised the wage it should be addressing the problem that has created the system in which that price of the cost of living and the re- the way that we live ha- has has you know fostered that so and i think as americans we just don't want to have that conversation we are incapable of having a deep rooted issue conversation and, and and solve the problem that we have and i i think i mean i'll go back to what like what you said about education uh would you made a good point education is not equal and Part of me thinks that, you know, I would rather have local communities and parents and and teachers to have full autonomy to teach their students what they want. Now, the problem with that, though, is that becomes, okay, you go deep south, you have creationism and anti-evolution, anti-vaccine, anti-common sense, anti-climate change, anti-things that we have verifiable scientific proof of. However, you know, is it right then for the government to come in and, and say, well, you must teach this, you must teach it this way, and you must teach it now? It's like there's so, we are incapable of having like a medium symbiotic like hey come together and let's figure this out so we can all live together peacefully because we're Americans. That's just <laughs> so no you you create like a lot of big points and like that's the reason I find it interesting. I was more of a federalist before these last four years because I'm like oh we need to get these changes done at the federal level, and then I saw, and this is the problem is we're very bad at seeing the future. Like right, Americans right. are really bad at predicting the future. <laughs> but the truth was, is I never expected the Republicans to consolidate power the way that they have because they've basically flipped on everything they've said for the last forty years. Yep, states' rights, states' rights. Like Texas sued what like five other states because they didn't vote the way Texas wanted to. Like that. Like, And I was talking to like my friends here in the UK and they're like, well, like at least they knocked it down like they should have. I'm like, the fact that was even allowed legally into the Supreme Court is a flaw. And like, like, that's what crushed me. Not like I'm happy the Supreme Court justice like looked at him like this is stupid. But the fact that they even looked at it. Yeah. Worries me. And the fact that they were legally obligated to look at it. That's just me in a rampage going like that because I'm a strong believer of state independence and kind of. But. Oh, sorry, I just lost my train of thought there for a second. Uh, what we're talking about education and rights of that. It opens you, one thing you're right is that you're talking about it's, it sounds great because you're hoping that these educators that are there for the right reasons. Right. But it does open up for propaganda. And you make some good points because here's the funny thing is like I'm an atheist. and I like, But I also was raised Protestant in a Catholic community 
even though like my ancestors came over and helped found Boston, which they're Puritans, but it was taken over by Catholics, which is not a bad thing. It's just, so I went to a public school where it was one of three non-Catholics. So I grew up in a good place and like I, my ministers were married and they had good relations with the Catholic minister. And it'd always be weird if I was acting up in church, the Catholic minister by the name of Father English, who was Irish, I know it's confusing, <laughs> would pick me up when I was being four-year-old, um, squirming in my chair, like bugging my mom. He'd pick me up or me and my sister and bring me to the back of the church and go over the Protestant Bible with me. Like that's what I grew up with religion is uh, understanding the communication between groups. And I grew up atheist just because my own beliefs and like I have trouble believing in something like that. But when you're talking about that, too, is teaching creationism purely scares the crap out of me. Yep. Teaching evolution purely scares the crap out of me because like it or not, for people out there, America is a very Christian nation. Like Scotland's the most atheist nation ever. People don't think about that. Like the best thing about here is you can go to old Catholic, like Gothic churches and they're all bars and dance clubs now <laughs> yeah. with all the – it's amazing. <laughs> uh, but you still have to have an understanding like one of the sayings that I always try to say on the podcast is you need to understand to agree, but you do not have to agree to understand. And you still have to keep that because I get more pissed at textbook thumping anti-thists, people against religion, than I do Bible thumping Christians or whatever their religion is. Because it's like if you're an atheist, you're supposed to, you're supposed to say that you know better. You, that's not – how are you being better than them? You're just basically trying to force your views, which is a belief because I can't prove there isn't a God. Right. They can't prove there's a God. We're all agnostic to some degree because there's it just it's uh, unscientific to call anyone a true atheist because we can't prove there isn't a God. Right. I know that's a whole really like, that's a dangerous religion, but that's just my view when it comes to situations like that. There was one other thing I was going to try and say, but I kind of lost – oh, when you're talking about minimum wage. Yeah. I think an important thing to talk about though is how big the United States is. Sorry, I'm getting attacked by a cat. Um, the most important thing about uh, minimum wage is that how big the United States is is – what state are you in? I didn't catch that. So I, I'm from Wisconsin, but I, I, I live in Virginia now. Okay. So my parents <clears throat> all live in North Carolina. Yep. My dad retired in Boston and he – it makes 80% what he did as a full-time federal agent in Boston when he moved down to North Carolina. But he makes more than his bosses would have if he – as a retired than he does down there. And they sold the house up in Quincy, which was right by the water, for over close to $300,000, uh, which is modest for the Boston area. And they bought a house twice twice the on a land at a house bigger for fifty grand, which is unheard of as a Bostonian. Boston is right now the most unaffordable city to live in in the United States. Um, it costs the average family needs to make $150,000 a year in order to survive comfortably. Mm. The average family of four brings in 80K. Right. So when you're talking about the 15, and that's the thing is people hear $15 minimum wage, and usually it might be on the Republican side in the red states. And the red states usually come from the states. $15 an hour, that's a lot of money. In the United States, that covers my coffee and a donut like right. up in the northern states. And it's and I think that's one of those disconnects of communication where like Seattle's complaining to people like, well, Seattle doesn't need $15 an hour. Seattle's just as expensive as like the West Coast is super expensive across the board. Um, so when people are trying to talk about that in Wisconsin or Alaska, which Alaska is also a super expensive state to live in, I think they people don't understand what the value is. Like just look up the price of a coffee. Right. In New York City and people are going like, oh, I'm not paying $6 for a coffee. That's a deal in New York City. 
Yeah. Well, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's funny because my argument and my, my solution, which I don't know how to implement it, but I, I want us to look at, you know, the reason why we've gotten to the point where you have middle-aged single mothers working at fast food restaurants or jobs that people would consider remedial, which I don't think is fair to say. I, I, I know there's a, there's a lot of elitist mentality in the, in the United States. Um, a job is a job. And if you're happy at your job or you're, you're, you're making your way or, you know, you're doing what you need to do for your family, good, good on you. And, and, you know, you know, we should support each other, but you know, how do we create a culture or a community in which those low end jobs are maybe reserved for, or, uh, op more open to kids who are in high school for part time or college kids who are trying to pay their way, so that you're making seven fifty an hour or eight dollars an hour just to learn the value of a dollar and whatnot. And those those forty five year old middle aged middle income single parents aren't trying to feed an entire family based on their job that isn't designed to pay that much. Rather than the government coming in and telling a, like a, like McDonald's to say, well, you have to pay them more because that's that's what we are requiring you to do so. And now, you know, I, I'm just wondering if there's a better way to go about it uh, rather than – or is there a transitionary policy? Is there a way we could, we could say, you know, for so, the next five years, $15 an hour, but this is the long-term plan? I don't know. So to be in a better state, there is actually a simple answer to your question, which is kind of strange. They already do that here in the UK, but I'm going to leave that for the end. Um, the first part though is when you're talking about stuff about having people – so I agree equal opportunity doesn't have to mean equal result. Right. That's the whole entire thing. But the problem is you need a few equal results before you can have equal opportunity because I know I came from privilege. Just – off that and just like I know right the second I was born, I was miles ahead of some other people. So them having equal opportunity to me, there's a disconnect there. So that whole entire conversation is like a whole philosophical wormhole that you're just going to get in arguments with people. <laughs> but the problem is first off is like the fact that college is so expensive. The second issue is I was fortunate enough to go to a high school that was both an academic and a trade school. Right. So I was taking honors physics. I was taking honors English during the morning. And in the evening, like after lunch, I was in the welding shop getting certified in the state for ma uh, for MIG, STIC, TIG. There are people running a kitchen that was running like a three-star restaurant out of the school, out of the culinary department. Um, the kids up in the automotive were working on the mayor's limousines. They were working on some of the trucks for the town. We were building gates for the city. Like – when I graduated high school, I got two high school diplomas. I got a trade school diploma and I got a high school diploma. So like if I wanted to get into the trade, I was already certified in a lot of the degrees, but I also had the diploma that would give me the option to go to high school. So I have something – I still have welding to fall back on. That's awesome. Which, which is an awesome thing. But the problem is, is most kids that go to a trade school, that degree is not going to get – you might get into a community college. Right. But if you didn't get the proper education – because I graduated with a 1.8 GPA. I was doing honors classes, but I just didn't do my homework. But I wasn't going to do a good school. So luckily, when the Marine Corps got me into mental shape, I already had the capacity to get better grades in community college, to get into a four-year school. And also, Massachusetts is very strict about our – a community college is, oh, has to be equal to a full state school. It's But not all states have that regulation, sadly. Uh, but like I was fortunate. But someone going to a trade school might not have those skills and wasn't given the understanding to even get to the more advanced maths that you need. 
for a degree or understand how to write a paper. They're so far behind at that starting point. You're screwed. But also at the same point, not everyone is built or not everyone has to be built for an office job. I have friends that are perfectly happy being welders, automotives, and they're making a decent living, uh, HVAC mechanics, like and all that. Like You can make a really good living, but we don't give our young the opportunity to learn what they want to do and what they don't want to learn, and we don't give them a chance to have a choice. It's either college, and we frown upon a lot of the trades. Right. Uh, the second oh, – sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was saying to say the second big issue when it comes to that is – a lot of older people, like when I was working security, I was working with retired police officers and working with retired uh, – one guy I was working with was a retired fishing game agent. Like that's one of the hardest agencies to get into and he was retired but he was working the security just because he needed to be able to pay off to keep in his house because pensions are no longer a thing. Right. He had a pension but still just because like the cost of living but we – a pension used to mean that you're if you do good work, they're going to invest into you. Technically, with a 401k, they're still investing with you, but they're paying minimal compared to what they used to on pensions. Right. And because 401ks are movable, that means they're no companies are no longer um, loyal to their employees. That's one issue you're dealing with. So people also get laid off a lot quicker and a lot easier. You're also then also dealing with people that disabilities are a thing. So when people want to talk about, oh, if college education is so expensive, join the military. That's great for you and I because we're able-bodied. Not everyone has that opportunity. They And I'm not talking like phys- like mental. Like That's another issue that we like to hide the special needs kids in the corner of a school, which you can get into a dictation about that. But I'm sure when you went through the physicals, they're looking for reasons to not let you into the military. Oh, yeah. Like not everyone could join. And the truth is so when people say if you want an education, there's this. The fact is that us that are getting into the military to have that education, we we would be perfectly fine in a labor job for the most part. Right. The people that you're not given the education are the ones that need to to be actually a functional providing taxpaying member of society. And you're pulling it away from them and basically saying it's your fault that you don't have this for something they have no control over. And that's a whole nother issue. And not only, you know, education, the fact that so many jobs nowadays, they they put so much stress on experience and that experience usually has to come from somewhere. Well, you have to have either a four-year degree and then five-year experience. Well, a lot of four-year degrees nowadays don't have actual on the ground, you know, in the field experience that can afford you the the knowledge to help do the job. And so it's like, you have to choose. Uh, I'm going to go to, go to a four-year degree, spend a bunch of money. And then after that, I'm going to have an internship that pays nothing to have the experience to then get the job that Which I want. We're the only first world nation to have non-paid internships be legal. Yeah, that's right. That's why a lot of like international, like people think like, why are all these um, NGOs and nonprofits like the UN, why do they have headquarters in the United States? The UN's headquartered in the United States. They do most of the work in Geneva, but they're headquartered in the United States. And because of that, they're allowed to do unpaid internships. Yep. Like they're supposed to be always fighting for human rights, but they're one of the biggest violators of that. Oh, well, because I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the UN has been useless for the most part. But yeah, yes, the, and the human rights aren't a huge fan of them, to be honest. Yeah, different, different conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
No, I, so so I I got my master's in education policy and community engagement, and one of the biggest tenets I I I learned from doing my dissertation and working through my for, through graduate school is character education and and learning how to uh, not just build worker bees. So everyone who you know we get we, people who are just building people who think the same and work the same and do the same and, and et cetera, but pe- building better people, building people who are interested in, 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 and have a stake in the community that they live in. And, and whether it be their, their local community, their, their school community, their military community, or their national community, or even their worldly community, right? Be, be having a stake in as a human and, and learning to be a better person overall and, and giving back and doing what you can and bettering, you know, greater, greater your good in, in, in a, in for to say a cliche term, but you know, how do you do that and, and have uh, role models like teachers and, and, and parents being symbiotically, you know, engaged with the students, but also prop up the students, you know, inherent instinctual passions? You know, I, I'm good at math. I can sit down and, and kill a math test, but I hate math. I hate doing it. I don't want to be around it. I don't care. Uh so you sound like me. I was forced to be an electrical engineer because, like, I'm good at physics and you know how to do math and you understand electrical theory. Uh huh. For <laughs> is that I I I look at electrical schematics. I understand them, but like they just make me internally want to scream. Yeah. But it's funny, like, just because you you're good at something doesn't mean you want to do that. Right. So if you're and if you're passionate about something, if you if you 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 know you're self actual you, you self actualize and say this this is my personal passion project that I want to work on. I, I will give my one hundred and twenty five percent to this project uh, or this this uh, this facet of life. Then now you're going to contribute to your society and in the community in a, in a more effective way. And how do we allow education to breed that out of out of out of students? And also, how do we you know, harness the instincts of a student who is curious by nature, who wants to learn things by nature. It's not going to be sit in a in a in a militaristic you know uh, row of desks in front of a blackboard and repeat after me and do the do the times tables and learn PEMDAS, you know, the order of operations and whatever, and just regurgitate that on the test later later in the week. And now, okay, you know math now. Well, that you know. Math is important, but if you're not instilling it and learning in the right tangible ways, that student will be able to do nothing. Well, the funny thing you say about that is, like I said, like I was taking like an honors physics institute, like I wasn't taking like proper physics. I was in a course that we called physics in context because we had the trade schools. So what they did is they took all some of like the welders that understand physics and like have a decent understanding. They took like the plumbers and next door, they were teaching physical theory. We were building, I think I built a wind turbine for my science fair project. Someone in there, like we had people, they're learning the physics, we're doing the physics. We had, you had, they were teaching us the math, teach us the problems, but like we had the capability and the know-how to do things. And you create that, which is an interesting point because the same point I was taking physics and understanding the laws of relativity, I was failing algebra two for the second time, <laughs> which physics is algebra, but because I'm dyslexic, I get mixed up with the numbers and the letters, but the second X means something. Once X is a variable, right. it's no longer confusing to me. Right. And right. I don't think people teach that. Like they don't teach, because it's great you're teaching this math, but I think the first time math ever made sense to me was like when I was taking statistics, because these numbers have meanings. Yep. 
or in physics, these numbers have meanings. Yep. And I don't think they're too focused on the numbers because to them, we're just numbers. Right. But these are problems that we know. Like you watch so many television shows, like you watch Here Comes the Boom with uh, the, 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 like the, what the biology teacher played being an MMA fighter. But he even says, he's like, teaching is messed up. You can't slow down for the kids that are having trouble and you can't speed up for the kids that are grasping the process. So you're just kind of here pushing cattle and it's... <clears throat> That's the American education system. That's the reason I kind of prefer the UK system because you're in your class A's or like your third or your final school until you get accepted to college or you get accepted to a trade school. Like you got accepted to a university at 15. That means you're good. Do no reason to stick around here. Go to university. Right. And it's a very – and I think that's the thing is they're treating kids at their own level. Like if it takes you an extra two years to graduate high school, it shouldn't be frowned upon possibly the school was failing that kid. And I guarantee most of the time the school was failing the child, not the child was failing the school. Right. And I, that's an, that's just something we do not pay attention to. And it's just the sad thing. We go back to the special needs kids. Like those are the kids that they like to throw through Wilson system, which only works for some of those needs, not all of those needs, but they're in the basement. I guarantee you most schools it's in the basement or it's in like that. It's in the back of the school. Cause they don't want to see that because that's not what, the average person in the education in the United States is very sad. But going back to your original question, when you're asking about minimum wage, I told you I was going to make you mad because there's a simple answer to it. <laughs> minimum wage is based by age in the United Kingdom. Really? Yeah. So I think it's like seven quid an hour for like, if you're under the age 15, 15 to 17, it might be like nine quid, 18 to 21 is a pay racket, 21 to 25 is a pay racket, and 25 upward is a pay racket. And they also handle self-welfare that way as well. I don't know if I like that. So some people don't like it because the idea is, like I have friends that are working right now that you might have a struggling person on their own by 18 years old having their own apartment and stuff like that. And they're able, now this, those employers can look at you and they can exploit you because they can charge you, pay you less for the same job that they're paying a 27 year old to do. So right. it kind of forces out the older people. They don't want older people working at McDonald's because they have to pay them more. But at the same point, it also does go back to your idea where a 16 year old for the most part, not all think, I think there should be exceptions to these rules and there should be paperwork to do this exception. If you're living on your own at 18, you should get the full pay. If you're, within a family that's struggling or your parent can't work, you should get the full pay. But the idea they're looking at is if you're just a 15-year-old just looking for money for gas and movie theater, it's more of a – like a social – like a – that is a socialist way of looking at it. You get paid what you need. So, no, I get where you're coming from. There is an issue with it, but that's the way they try to handle that issue here. Uh, I mean, it's an, it's an interesting concept. I, I don't – I I just don't. I think at the core, the core of my principles, I don't. I don't agree with the government coming in and telling a private business what to pay someone. I think it should be based on merit. And if that if that business pays someone like shit, I would hope the community would therefore not patron that business. Well, that's probably the thing because it's it's minimum wage. That's the other thing too. It's also it's minimum. Like the employers can pay above, and most of them do. Um, it's also a difference of idea. Uh, there also is a different idea here too, is they don't have some of the same financial issues that we have in the United States. Right. Because tax culture isn't a thing. Right, 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 right. So waitresses minimum wage and bartenders minimum wage is minimum wage. 
they still get tips. Like I still try to throw a tip. I can't do it right now because like we've pretty much gone cashless as a society in the United Kingdom because of COVID. But even still, like 15% tip is a super generous tip in the UK. But even still, like if I get a round of it's this is gonna sound strange, but like usually in the US, like my way of even Boston, if I buy four beers, I'm leaving four dollars per tip, like one for each beer. Right. But here in the UK, I could go to grab like six like uh like six beers. And just throw like the pocket change on there. And that's still, I try to give it like one quid or two quid, but still like that's a generous tip. I'm sure some like bartender here in the, like, the UK is like, that's not a generous tip. Like it should be giving me a fiver. <laughs> um, but it's just a different culture because the truth is, is that they're not living off. They are living off their way, uh, their tips, but it's not breaking their bank if they don't get those tips. We're in the United States. Right. And I think it's a whole nother point of the minimum wage thing that we don't talk about is that strange fact that you can pay – like I've known waitresses to come back after working 40 hours a week and owe their bosses money yeah, because how they did taxes. And like that should not be acceptable. No. And and, and I think that that would be you know part of – I think that's part of the problem that, that uh, you know, and this is stereotypical, but, you know, Rep- Republicans tend to want people to self-regulate and think that business owners will be good on their own. And Democrats automatically assume that all business owners are greedy and will not do the best thing for their employees. And I believe that there should be some kind of accountability in which, like, I, I'm not, if I know that a business isn't paying their waitresses and treating them like, like shit, uh, I don't want to go there. And therefore that the market will then determine whether that business stays afloat and makes money. However, that's not always true because I'm just one person. And it's like the argument for like climate change. If I stop using straws, well, then I'm saving the world. Well, really China is still destroying the world. So what good are you doing? Um, it's, it's tough. You know, it's, you know? it's true though too, because the UK is also a different culture as well, because when they're one more used to regulation, Right. As I've said before. Right. And two, when it comes to restaurants, they are – I don't have a car here in the UK. I don't need a car in the UK. People get – like this is the scary thing that's going to piss people off. I'm in the biggest city in Scotland. I'm a 10-minute walk away from a subway. There's a commuter rail train over there that I can basically go anywhere I want in Scotland and my rent's less than $600 US. Oh, like yes. that's the thing. Like this is a major city. Um, <laughs> but like th- that's the prices. But the second part is because most people don't drive. There's a bar two doors down from me. Like right there. But the thing is they're part of the community. Everyone in this area knows those bartenders. Those bartenders are part of the community. The people that work there are our neighbors. Right. But if they mistrust – if they mistreat their employee, they're mistreating a member of our community, we're not going to patronize them. Exactly. Um. So – but that's because of that tightness. Like people here – like there's a few bars I'll go downtown. Like some of my favorite bars are downtown in the downtown community. But I know the bartenders. They know my orders like beforehand. Like you get to know and talk to them. And like my friend was a bartender, so she talks to them and goes like that. If people are mistreating, bartenders talk. Waitresses talk here. Like it's a tight community here. So you don't have that, but you don't have that communication in that. But it's also because we are – mom and pop places are more common still in Europe. They're kind of dying in the US. And so then you get stuck with bureaucracy of complaints. And who do you complain if McDonald's is mistreating? Because that's uh, – this is the national pave record. <laughs> You you can't sit down with a lawyer like you, not a lawyer like the the owner of the area like you can with a smaller place and I think that's the reason it works here. We kind of as I said we've already kind of screwed ourselves over in the United States trying to make these changes because we've kind of already handed over 
we've handed over the uh, the reins to these corporations. Right. Jumped off the cart and now trying to figure out how to get back on to get like we're so far behind. It's well, and, and we we've seen a, a really interesting turn of events with with COVID that there are certain corporations that get favorable treatment by the government when it comes to lockdown orders in the United States. That you know the arguments for or against lockdown orders aside, when you do have a lockdown order, it should be applied equally, right? Yeah. Uh, that's not happening. Uh, the Mall of America in Minneapolis, you know, the biggest mall out there, it has a lot of attractions and whatnot. There was a video, or a, well, it was a video, but also a picture that that was posted and circulated on Twitter that showed a bunch of people, thousands of people in the main drag of the mall when you walk in. Uh, Wearing masks, you know, great, but there there were thousands of people there out and about doing stuff and and patroning those uh, those shops. Whereas down the road, you have small private mon pop shops that are unable to open because of the way that the guidelines are written from the state government. And it's because the corporation, the Mall of America, makes money for Minneapolis. It makes money for the state. And so the interest. The thing is, is that there's actually a direct correlation with that in the UK. Did you hear what happened in Wales last month? No, tell me. So in Wales, they had a order saying that only essential stores can be open. So grocery stores, stuff like that. Yeah. But they have what Tesco's here. And a Tesco is basically a Walmart. Okay. Like that's, you have that. The prime minister of uh, of Wales said if all Tesco's are not allowed to sell anything that is not an unnecessary item. You're not allowed to sell toys. You're not allowed to sell clothes. Anything that you were a small mom and pop store would sell because they're not allowed to sell it. You're not allowed to sell it, which I'm like, okay, that's good. But in the back of my mind, I'm going, well, Jeff Bezos just made a shit ton of more money. Yes. And that's because like you can't control what's online. And like I understand where he's coming from. Like that order would have worked great in the 70s, not 2020. Right. That and that's sort of the whole entire problem. That's a huge issue right there because I get know exactly what you're talking about, and it's just like it goes back to the whole entire ATF thing. Yeah, someone's gonna find a loophole and screw it for the rest of us, and that's the. But no, I, I think that's where you're trying to get at with like that idea, and it's like some people are trying it. It's just, yeah, I, and my my larger theme is that you know I don't I don't think that the government I'm not like anarchists type libertarian so so libertarian that you know i want the government to go away entirely i think the state the state governments and local governments and federal government have a, a place in society they're important for certain things my only argument for us to as a, as americans to look further into these things and say and recognize that government is imperfect because government is run by people and people are imperfect and if you're going to have an agency like the ATF or the Department of Education or uh, Department of Commerce and, and uh, all this stuff, and you want regulations to help people, that's great. I think it's a it's a it's a well intentioned argument to make sure that we're doing the best we can for people. However, when those laws are written in such gray ways in or in such partisan ways, they're going to be applied and 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 manipulated and loopholed and we have to figure out and have a conversation about why that is or not happening. And it's because the, the that's what I, I have such a problem with is people think that, you know, okay, well, the government mandate is X, Y, and Z. And therefore, if you don't follow it or you don't agree with it, you're wrong. And maybe 
you know, it'd be better if the rhetoric would roll back from calling me a bad person because I don't agree with a mandate to understanding why the mandate isn't even effective in the first place because the government has been inefficient at applying it. And not, I'm not talking about COVID, but just in general, any kind of regulation that exists, having a more fleshed out conversation about what regulation is good or bad or could be slimmed down or ramped up depending it could change from year to year you know all that nuance is missing well that's also a thing that's interesting like studying uh talking to a few like political majors from other countries because not all countries have constitutions mm-hmm. the uk doesn't have a constitution and they seem to get around just fine without <laughs> one uh but it's also interesting with them too though because they don't have the familiarity with the constitution, they don't – Americans are really good because of constitutional lawyers. The fact that we have constitutional lawyers, I thought like, oh, it's a good thing. Like there's a mark. I've realized constitutional lawyers is a fa- – the fact we have them is a failure of our government because the fact that the laws were written so poorly that we're arguing over what they are. Like some people think like it's a masterpiece of document that covers everything because it could be conceived. It's like – a law shouldn't be argued. Like a law is like the law of physics. I can't go up to an apple and yell at it to go up when it falls <laughs> off a tree to hit Isaac Newton. You shouldn't be able to argue a law. A law should be the same time and time again. And the fact that we have constitutional lawyers is a sh- now it's weird because I used to think like this is the best part of the constitution. Now I see it as a failing because there isn't no such thing as a perfect law. There's always going to be a nuisance. You could see a law that seems perfect. Um, the best example I can think of is the ECHR which is the European Commission of Human Rights. Mm-hmm. So it's an actual list of human rights that is actually enforceable by the European court. So it's basically like, think of a bill of rights, but forced upon everyone, but you don't have to be a citizen of that nation. You just have to be a human. Okay. So even if you're not a member, so I'm protected by the ECHR. Gotcha. Even if I was an illegal immigrant here, I'd still be protected by it. The first um, article one is the right to life. A government at all times has to defend your life. No matter what, and that's one of their first priorities. That sounds great. Sounds great. There's three exceptions to this rule. Capital punishment. Eh, all right. I'll give it to you. Like I know the whole entire death penalty thing is an argument. <laughs> Self-defense. Granted, okay. that's one I understand. Self-defense, I understand. Quelling a riot or rebellion. Well, in a riot kind of makes me nervous because riot, you should be using less than lethal tactics. But I guess that covers the cop for actually hitting someone in the face with a rubber bullet accidentally. Right. But they don't define what a riot or rebellion is. Yeah, that's kind of Which vague. makes me nervous. And that's the three things. And like people like, okay, like even like our argument. You notice how they didn't mention um, something called abortion? Yeah. So now that opens up a lot of groups that abortion is against human rights. And there is that argument from nation to nation and certain groups will push that forward where I'm thinking about this and like some people, some listeners are going to be, of course, it's against human rights because you're killing a life. And like I'm trying to avoid that argument, but it's going to be interesting because because of the fact that something as important, as decisive as that they left out. And now there's a major hole and flaw in that. What seemed before I even pointed out, seemed like a pretty solid argument until you take other stuff, you're always going to find a loophole. You're always going to find a way to manipulate something. Right. So for most people, that article helps protect you. Now, when you're fighting for abortion, now that's another obstacle. You push the log out of your your way into someone else's way. And that's how laws always seem to happen. It, 
is is the UK? Do you know is the U or the, that was a that was a European contract? Not the as of right now. Because even after the, I think the UK is trying to get out of it, but because the UK joined with it, it's the UCHR. From my understanding, is not part of the EU. They okay. signed on to it individually. Oh, okay. So they're still answerable to it, but do, they're trying to shake it off. Do you do you know? Are as far as like for for self defense, I know in the United States it's kind of state by state, like stand your ground laws and castle laws, and 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 you know. Uh, and things are kind of getting murkier because uh, Massachusetts just, to be flea doctrine, but we finally went to castle doctrine. Yeah. Ca- the castle doctrine. Thank you. Um, but we just had this, this situation with Brianna Taylor in, in Kentucky, not just, it was a, a while ago, but the final, we just, we, we just had the case argued and, and discussed and, and the grand jury, all that good stuff happened recently. But of course, during all this, this, uh, racial tension that's going on, but you have a, a law enforcement officer go to the door of someone's private residence, and uh, they said knock, but clearly something there was a there was a wry something something happened, and uh, the person stood their ground and and thought someone was breaking in and shot at the officers and did not kill an officer but clipped an officer's leg. Uh, that becomes now this really weird myriad of conversations of, of like what's okay with the castle doctrine, what's okay with stand your ground, you know. So I have a couple thoughts because I've thought about this a lot, being a criminal justice student and human rights <laughs> and all this. The first part about it though, it's also very – it's interesting standing in the UK because I find it funny. I live in a part of Glasgow known as Govan. It's the old shipyard district, which I find fascinating because I grew up in a part of Boston called Quincy. Which is where all the ships were built for World War One, World War Two, Spanish American. Like Kilroy was here, comes from. I used to see where that comes from, huh. um, but like, all the famous battleships were built in Quincy. They were built in my hometown, um, and now I live in the part of Glasgow, which is the part of the UK where all their warships came from. So you have that very shipbuilder mentality, and like the house. It's I find it fascinating. You've come, you've come full circle, that, full circle. But <laughs> you have. People from ship like Quincy's now turning very yuppie. But even when I was growing up as a kid, shipbuilding communities there, there's a roughness to them. It's not a place you just go into a bar and mess with people. Like it's a very rough area, and that's just because it's rough people. It's hard work. It's that's how it's going to be. So Govan has this has this reputation of being a rougher neighborhood. Um, police will come here every once in a while, which is always interesting seeing the Scottish police because one, it's one police department for the entire nation of Scotland. Which is an American that's just crazy to think about. But I've had them, I've seen them and heard them kick down the doors of my neighbors. But they banged on the door for 20 minutes saying, we know you're in there. We know there are 20 minutes. Everyone in our building in our block was awake during this situation. There was 15 cops, not a gun in sight. They had the riot shields ready. They had the baton ram. And they, after 20 minutes of break, thing, they break, broke down the door. I'm not going to get more into that because I don't really know any much more that happened. I think it was something of like a mistaken identity at the end of it. And someone just got scared of cops because you have 15 cops banging at your door. That is kind of a scary situation. Right. But I don't really know what it is. But the thing is, is like I remember I was talking to my buddy who's a cop and he's like, is it a no knock raid situation? I'm like, well, he's been banging on the door for 15 minutes and like I'm two floors down below and I can hear. So it's like our neighbors across the street were coming out. It's like, all right. Like it's uh... – but it's interesting as an American because like it was funny. I text an American cop and it's saying, was it a no knock raid? First question out of the mouth. And it got me thinking about no knock raids because, well, when the reason that – it's weird that we don't – like if I was going to do a no knock raid, I would do it in the UK because guns aren't a thing. 
But I've also, you don't hear of no-knock raids in state certain states. Massachusetts is one of them because of the fact that we register our guns and the people always go like, oh, if a cop ever comes down my door, I'm going to blast him. Or he shouldn't, he should know better than they come into my door because I'm going to blast him. How does he know you have a gun if your gun's not registered? Like a message, I get pulled over for like a red stop or something like that. First thing a cop comes up to me is like, I know you have a gun registered on you. Do you have it on you? No, I don't, officer. Here's like everything. He knows I have a firearm. And the thing is, I don't care if a cop knows I have a firearm. I know some people like the government's going to come for your guns. They're not. They have better things to do. They have better ones than you have. Like they're not trying to collect your stuff. Like, I'm sorry. Like, your your pea shooter is not going to stop an Abrams. Just right. just saying. <laughs> <laughs> but at the end of but that's the whole entire situation where like if we did register our farms, and that's the reason I'm for registering firearms and I'm for licensing because I find it even silly in Massachusetts. You practice with a 22 caliber revolver, you can now buy a Desert Eagle. Okay. You're not ca- trained for that or used to be able to buy an AK-47 or a shotgun. Like you don't – I have a motorcycle license to drive a motorcycle. I'm not going to go jump in a semi-truck and pretend I know what I'm doing. And that's like the stop on that. I know that's I'm going to a weird tangent on firearms. But the truth is if, if most people did register and stuff like that and you had this idea of it, cops would be a lot more nervous about knocking on those doors. Or like if that person had a gun, I guarantee if the cops knew that there was a registered gun in that household – they would have handled things a lot more pleasantly than they had. Yeah. And I know that's a weird tangent of being pro gun control, but there's <laughs> positive attributes to it. Yeah. And that's, that's an interesting point. I, ne- I never thought about that angle. Um, if their gun was registered, they would know that the gun was there and they wouldn't have handled it as poorly as they did. That, that, that might very well be true. Um, would they be nervous because they know there's a gun involved? Yes. But the truth is, is, it makes me very curious because I get like a lot of like, I know like it all sounds like I'm a very much against, I can be like anti-veteran on stuff. And I'm not anti-veteran, I'm against American military society. Cause the problem is, is that we love to rush people through the military right into law enforcement. And people go like, Oh, it's a rank structure with a badge and a gun and a uniform, two total different jobs. Yeah. And I'm sorry. Yes. You go through 13 weeks of training for being an officer officer. I was in the Marine Corps, even though I was an electrical engineer, I had to spend so much time on range. I still, when I go to the target, it's two to the chest, one to the head. That's my mentality. And like if a cop shoots for the head, that's an execution. In the military, that's a legal kill. But like those are two different situations. And also when it's war, it is shoot first to ask questions later. That's not how police officers should be. No. And there is a whole entire disconnect where we are pushing people straight because many states will give you preference for military service, but not give you preference for a college education in criminal justice. Right. I'll get paid more in Massachusetts. I get a 20% pay bonus because I went to a Quimbo certified school in Massachusetts to go to a, I get hired by a department. But my friends that went straight from the military right into law enforcement, they're getting paid 30% more than they did when they first walked in. So even that financial benefit doesn't really – and these are – Topics I've covered on my podcast, essentially, people think I'm like being anti-vet. I'm not being anti-vet. I'm anti-military culture in the United States because we are becoming very militant without even recognizing it. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I worked. I, I told you before earlier. Uh, I was. I worked in pretrial services as a as a case manager um, in Milwaukee County uh, for about two years. I was. I was working with the circuit court in Milwaukee County. And a lot of that work was working with police officers and, and, and people who were, you know, interacting with the community and, 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 and arresting people and they would go to jail. They'd come out on bail. They'd come to me and I would 
I would help them with whatever I could help them with. Uh, and then I would tell court that they're doing good or they're doing bad. And then sometimes that would result in more law enforcement contact or, you know, they would have to report their law enforcement contact if they were out on bail and they they got pulled over or they got stopped on the, the sidewalk because someone saw they had a bench warrant or, or, or something. And there are a lot of police officers that do a great job. There are also a lot of police officers that have that militant power trip mentality that, and that doesn't mean that they're going to kill someone. It just means that they're not handling things in the most human way to help solve a problem or a situation and help that person get the help they need. Is it the right course of action to arrest someone for having a little bit of pot or any drug on their, on their body? And it, because is jail going to help them? And, and, and the, the five days, uh, that they're going to, they're going to stay in jail because they can't afford their bail until there's there, someone comes and pays the bail for them. And therefore they lose their job and they're going to be in, in jail. If they're an addict, they're going to withdraw in jail. It's going to be hell for them. They're going to come out. They're going to see me. a whole nother. <laughs> oh, you can... yeah, that, that's a, that's another podcast, but, <laughs> um, you know, you and then you come to me and you hate me because I'm I'm your supervisor uh, on pretrial, and I have to try to figure out how to help you. If if there were some tool tools we could put in the tool belt of an officer that you know they could still do their job and and make the best decisions for you know protecting their life and making sure others around the community are being safe, but just some basic tools to to provide them with to help certain people at the front end and making it so that, you know, you're not this evil cop with a gun. You're, you're a part of a public service trying to solve an issue. Um, that, that for whatever reason, that conversation has gotten, has devolved into either you're back the blue or you're anti-cop. And that is, I, I think that is the, the, one of the most disgusting things I've seen that has come out of this, this racial tension that, that started with George Floyd is that why can't I criticize the police and also support the police? I, in fact, think that criticism is the best form of support. No, and I completely agree. And that's one of the things I actually try to do through my podcast. Um, I've actually had former LEOs and crime fiction novels that were former law enforcement and criminal justice professors on and social psychiatrists. And we talk a lot about this issue. And I try to talk about the Black Lives Matter and these things without a racist hmm. point of view. Because racism is a key, but there are other things that we're talking about. Uh, first off is why don't we go to the baton? Why do we go to the gun so fast? Because if you pull a baton out, I'm going to be scared shitless. Because the gun, I'm going to hear a bang and then it's black. Right. A baton, that's that's a fractured femur. But then you have to get into Sioux culture, which is a whole other part of the United States. Also, the fact that our cops aren't usually having backup. Then we also have to look at the average law enforcement officer goes through 13 weeks of training. Where in Europe, they go through 18 months and they have to go through like another six months of training to get a gun. Um, some departments have social workers on call for issues of domestic violence, which I think is an amazing idea to – because they're not social workers. Like no. you have to have six years of school to do that. Right. Um, there is so much different. Um, and one good point too is – it is interesting. I think that's where like, I'm fortunate enough when I can talk about a lot of stuff is I've studied criminal justice. I've seen things from the human rights perspective. I've been into the military. So I've been – I've tapped into each one of these little areas so I can get a more rounded view. But there are conversations that aren't being had because the fact is, is that I don't know what it's like to be African-American. I'm sure you don't know what it's like to be African-American. <laughs> I've never been scared. When blue lights happen behind me, first light is like, great, this is going to lose 15 minutes of my life. Yeah. 
I'm not thinking I could end up jailed or dead. That's not the first thing that hops in my mind. It's like, great, I could get a ticket. That's my biggest fear. And I think that's the biggest thing of privilege is that when I see blue lights, the big worst thing I'm going to do, I'm afraid of pulling out my checkbook, not having my family check out a death certificate. Like that's a total different conversation. So of course, if that's the first thing that pops in your mind, they're going to act scared. They're going to be nervous. Right. Uh, and that makes perfect sense to me. The other argument too is you have that old saying, a few bad apples spoils the bunch. Yep. Which is true. But if you listen to – like um, I had Frank Scalise on, who's also known as Frank Safario. He's a prime fiction novelist and former LEO. He made a really good point, which I never thought about because he's been a commander in law enforcement and stuff like that. He goes, they're pro-, he's like, I guarantee he's like, I've worked in, I think he's like in law enforcement for 35 years. And he goes, there's two or three officers I worked with that if you told me and you had, if you told me that they were crooked, I would I wouldn't be surprised. But the truth is, is even though we're watching them and we're trying to watch them is they're American citizens too. You can't just throw false advertisements. And if they're doing it, most cops are on their own before. Like now you have body cameras and gun cameras and like the dashboard camera. But like those are new things. We're talking about the older – and they still know how to get around those. Oh, it didn't work. I didn't know it was off, et cetera, et cetera. They can't – they don't know what the other officers are doing when they're out on patrol. They don't know what those officers are doing when they're off duty and they still have their badge and their gun. You don't know. So even if you have a suspicion, you don't want to be that guy either to be like, I think there's something there because it's like, do you think or do you know? Right. Because if you don't want the cops treating you that way, treating your citizens that way, they're also like, well, I'm a citizen as well. Um, Sir Robert Peel had the nine principles of policing. I think number six is my favorite, which is the people are the police and the police are the people. We have to remember that. And it's like – the second you start doing this us versus them mentality and that they should be treated differently, like, yes, they should be held to a higher standard because there are civil servants, but it doesn't mean that they lose the right to due process. Right. It doesn't mean the right to slander. It doesn't mean so much different things. Like also, I just get really frustrated for cops because I understand, especially with COVID, Minneapolis Police Department does something crappy. There's going to be riots in Boston, but the Boston cops are like, why are you riding here? We didn't do anything. We're condoning with you. We don't agree with that system. We have nothing to do with them. They're states away, cities away, and you have this disconnect. And also, if people also forget it also takes one idiot with a rock to start a riot or one pissed off cop that wants to you could be having a bad day, just had an argument with the wife that day or the argument with the husband that day. Right. And someone just got in his face and that yeah. – yeah, these are – they're humans on both sides. They're humans. We're initially flawed by design. Oh yeah, I I witnessed with, with some clients that I had. I I, I witnessed judges like if it was a Friday at four p.m. and there was a violation, like a positive drug test for some drug or whatever, and I had to walk the client down to the judge, and the judge wanted to talk to them, and usually it was just a wag of the finger and like, hey, don't do that again. If you do it again, I'm going to raise your bail and you go back to jail, um, which of course is a stressful thing to hear, um, but. Uh, if it was Friday at 4 p.m., it was, you know, the judge wanted to get out of there. They didn't want to really deal with it. Uh, you know, I, I just want to leave at 5 and get out of here. You know, hey, stop it and I'll talk to you later. But if it was Monday at 9 a.m., that judge is fresh, ready to go, and is probably going to throw the book at this guy. It's like right there. That's unequal justice. That that I, Because just like law enforcement, people are humans. And and how do you, how do you make all officers – you know, perfect robots who do great things. You cannot do that. And that shouldn't be an argument. It should, it should be, how do we, 
have a, a closer community and, and, and relationship with the officers that serve our community and make it so that, you know, we all kind of have a stake in the fact that, you know, we can elect our, our sheriff, we can be a part of, of community uh, advocacy programs and services and, and, and outreach events and whatnot that exist. And I, I really hope that most places that are hurting right now, like Detroit, like Minneapolis, like Milwaukee, like Chicago, like New York City, um, that officers do a, a, their their utmost, uh, go above and beyond and try to help heal this divide and, and, you know, show up and go to, go to places and be a part of the community, you know, rather than just be the guy who pulls someone over. Uh, you can be that while also being a part of this you know, this lived in world, this national night out block party. Yeah, you're talking about uh, community policing theory, which is Com separate from breaking windows theory or watchman theory. Yeah, but right. The, and the other thing, we, it's the other thing we also have to remember, though, too, is the world that, and I'm not trying to make excuses for law enforcement. I know people are going to be like, oh, he's making excuses. Is we also have to remember, we only get to, see, we only see the stuff that hits the news. Right. These cops deal with domestic violence cases day after day, homicides yes. day after day, yep. child molestations day after day, someone screwing over grandma and stole their money. Like they're dealing with heartbreaking things that will crush your soul on a daily basis. And this is – the sad thing is perspective – there's a term in the military which is perspective is reality. And if that's their perspective day in, day out, this is the world to them. They don't get to see the world through – they don't get to shut the news off because they're the ones that are going to those sites. They're seeing stuff we don't even know about. And the sad thing is that we also – anyone that's here and they have friends that are cops and you befriended them because of their beliefs, you actually probably hurt the system. I have friends that are cops and like my friends that are cops, I don't always agree with certain things. They'll say something like, whoa, dude, like you need a thing. And I understand they're frustrated. Every one of my friends and every single person that said like a questionable thing, whether they voted for Trump because you could have – logical reasons for vote for Trump. Just figure out people's reasons for saying something or understanding something. If you're a cop, and this is what other cops always say, the best thing you do is don't surround yourself by other cops. Right. Don't put yourself in that echo chamber. Have friends that have fluffy, fun jobs. Make sure you get out and see other things. Make sure you travel when you have time off. And these are really important things to go because we have to remember that is their world. Like it's very like it's not like being a doctor where yeah being a doctor sucks because you have to tell people that they're dying but you also got to have the joy of telling them that they survived cancer or they beat cancer. There's kind of a trade off. Cops don't really have it. It's kind of like negative all the time, right? And I think people forget that. And but that's because we're not cops, right? Yeah. Well, in the, in the same way that that negative contacts happen with with people who are in the criminal justice system and, and it, it, it creates and breeds resentment and, and kind of adds to the, 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 the recidivism that exists in a lot of cities that you, you, you kind of have this idea of law enforcement, this idea of the judicial system, because they, you know, quote unquote, screwed you over how many times and you're, you're tired of it and you're resentful because of it. Uh, that same thing happens with cops. Uh, cops go in a certain situation and, and they understand that, you know, you're probably, an asshole who who uh, hurt someone or or hit hit a hit a wife or a, a husband and and now you're in the situation that is repeated or first responders showing up to the scene and, and finding you know people who have been killed in a car accident because of a drunk driver you're going to look at drunk drivers in a different way and you know drunk drivers are wrong for doing what they're doing and driving drunk but at the same time they're human beings who deserve due process and 
maybe a path to, you know, rehabilitation and recompense and, and, and being remorseful. But, you know, those conversations are so lost on us because it's difficult for us to weed through the emotions of the day. And, and just like cops, just like offenders, just like judges, just like anybody, people dealing with education, teachers, bureaucrats, the ATF agents, et cetera, everyone we've talked about tonight, um, you know, it, the, the human element is what's hard to get through. And I, I wish we as humans understood more that we're all humans. <laughs> well, I think that's a huge sort of thing is when people make the same, like I said, perspective is reality. I think another flip of that, which is also a better, is perspective can change reality. Yeah. If the more you learn on a subject, the more it changes your idea. And the worst thing that I see in America and I see it with like not your podcast because I listened to a few before I actually got on because I had some time. <laughs> but I've also noticed other po- – because I do listen to other political podcasts because I'm trying to figure out who I want to collaborate with, who I want as a guest. And like I said, we get back to that whole entire idea of research. And I was listening to this one podcaster and he goes, oh, I was reading this one research and I just didn't agree with them and I stopped halfway through. How can you judge something without you going halfway through? Because even if they had bad research, this is – there's – and I don't want people to misconceive this. There's such thing as bad research as ethical reasons yep. or their methodology was messed up. But as long as the ethics are fine and the methodology is sound, even if they don't prove their research correctly, the most the best thing researchers can do is admit they were wrong. Right. Like I found that with my dissertation. I found out like I asked the wrong question. I did all my math and stuff and figured out like I can't prove this question through the methodology that I choose. And people would be like, that's a failure of research. No, because the next person going to tear and answer this question, they know what not to do. Right. Every scientific advancement, social dilemma and everything that we're talking about, just because we did it wrong the, like, the first time, we shouldn't always like one, it's like if someone dies and something bad happens, yes, condone it. But just because like something didn't work out, we're like, oh, that person's idiot. It's like, no, they're trying to figure it out. No, for every time that we, how many times did Edison apparently try to make the light bulb? Like, I know that's a... <laughs> miscon uh, what do you call it hypothetical or hyper uh, hypothetical I think that's the word uh, yeah but yeah right. like they say it took him a thousand tries right. and the first time like do you call him an idiot because he tried no and I feel like that's a problem is Americans get scared to try or they see one thing fail and they're like oh that's never gonna work yep. some things we should avoid but you have to still try and there's different issues and I think it's I hope that was I caught what you're trying to say correctly. Yeah, no, I I I think that's right, and I, I think that's kind of the more or less the theme of what we discussed. Um, which I mean, we've covered lots of topics, and I I mean, we're we're about to hit two hours, so I, I do want to. Oh, I'm so sorry. No, 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 no. It's been a great conversation. It's been great to talk to you. I, I we we've we've. It, you know, it's it, it's frustrating because you and I can sit down and have a conversation about all these nuances and these things that, you know, I'm sure there are things that you and I can agree on and disagree on. But at the same time, we kind of recognize that there is more to all these issues than just yes or no. And that to me is is what is so frustrating in, in, in the discourse that people can't see past that. And the fact that you and I can sit down here and have a two hour conversation and, you know, not worry about a damn thing. And just and not get mad at each other about it. That why is that lost on people? Um, so I hope I hope this can be an example that you know there's there's more to discuss. There's there's more to the topics than just what the flavor of the day is saying on the news. You know. Well, that's a huge thing, and it's like one thing I try to kill a lot 
is buzzwords. Yep. It's like that's a huge thing. Misconceptions of buzzwords because I've realized people always walk in. We're all prejudiced. Not saying we're all racist, but we're all prejudiced. We always walk into every single situation with a prejudgment of how it's going to play out. Yep. That's just human. That your brain does it without even thinking. That's how you're able to catch a baseball. That's a prejudice of physics. Like that's sorry, but that's how that works. And that's how your mind works. We can't get around that, but you have to be aware of that. And I think that's where a lot of people fail. And we have to learn. And it's it's kind of crazy. You could go on all the other things, but like I found out things that I didn't know I was prejudiced against. Because it was something I've never been exposed to. I just heard one or two things. Someone read something. Oh, this is what I thought about that. Realized it's completely wrong. But it was just interesting to find out about something that's never affected me before. Right. That I had a prejudice against it. And it makes you wonder how many things that I go through a daily basis when I just walk by and think about it. I really have no idea what I'm talking. Like I have no idea what's going on. Yeah. It's I, – I mean, I mean to be self-aware I think is a very – I mean – it's a very admirable characteristic to have, to be self-aware. And I try every day to be more self-aware and, and, and try to be as humble and, and modest as possible. But I think I fail and I learn from that failure every day um, because I, I prejudge myself in thinking that, oh, I got this. And then I screw up and then I procrastinate and then a week goes by and it's like, well, shit, I didn't get that report done at work yet. <laughs> well, no, that's, just, that's also just part of being human and it's just – no, I didn't – I had an idea, uh, had a thought real quick, but this whiskey's too good. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, like, I try to like I try to do the same thing, but I've kind of learned one thing, and I never understood it until like I hit that level when I hit masters. And I think this is the thing that frustrates. I finally understand why our professors in school and the PhDs act the way and they talk the way you do. You think they're like trying to? Some do try to talk down to you, like look at me, I'm on my high horse and I'm so smart. But if you ask them a good question, like you've asked me so many good questions and I have to sit here and think about it just because I have a different perspective and knowledge on it. And I don't think people understand that having knowledge and intelligence are two different worlds. Yeah, right. Like I feel like 99% of Americans and everyone else's world, if they had the same access to experiences, tools, and education that I have, they'd probably be smarter than me in these subjects. <laughs> it just I have had the opportunity to have these tools. But it's one of those things when you talk about politics and these issues in society, the more you know, the more you learn, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. Right. And I think that's something that people need to understand. It's like the second that you think you're an, like, and anyone that's listening, the second you think you're an expert on something, like I don't, even if you're the best artist or best woodworker or like you're the best resume writer, because it happens every single time where our friends like, oh, I'm a new exec, I'm doing it for resume. And I'll show it to someone else and they'll be like, oh, you did that wrong. <laughs> or this is the best. There's always someone that's going to be, you can always learn something from other people. But the second you think yourself an expert, you've already lost the game. You've, you gave up, you stopped learning. And also, or you don't know what the hell you're talking about to begin with. Cause I thought I knew what human rights were before I came in here. And I'm like, I knew that much. Now I know about that much. And there's about 20 feet of knowledge above me that I'm like, I don't even have like the grasps of understanding. Right. Right. Well, and that, that's a beautiful thing. There's always more learning and understanding to to be had. You know, I, I think that's what's the beautiful thing about us. It is, but that's the thing that scares me about politics is you turn the news like you're talking about and NBC has the answers. It, Fox right. knows what's happening. And like we live in this world of opinions are now treated as facts. Yep. Which scares the crap out of me. Like the, I think the worst thing the news ever told us was that the masks aren't for us. They're for just protect other people because now people have that opinion. 
oh, I don't feel sick. Therefore, I must not be sick. Therefore, I'm not sick. And like, you don't feel sick, which is feeling is an opinion. You have the opinion that you're not sick. You don't know you're not sick. So I don't have to wear a mask because I'm not sick. But like you or I walking around with a mask because we don't know if we're sick. We're the problems because we're wearing a mask. So therefore, we must be sick. Therefore, we should be the ones that people stay away from. <laughs> <laughs> which is a weird twist of logic, but... <laughs> Well, I, I mean, it's confidence too, right? People people are attracted to confident. If you have an opinion and you're confident about it, even if you're blowing smoke out of your ass and you don't even have, you're using data that's manipulated. If you say it with a confident, you know, stroke of cadence, you are going to be believed. And that's that people can't critically think and get past that and understand that, you know, if Tucker Carlson says something on Fox because he's confident and he 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 has a persona. Uh, that doesn't mean that he's right. He might have a point in some way, but that doesn't mean that it's like the end all be all. This is what you should think about. Uh, but anyway, that we could go another yeah. hour talking about. All the well, it's also funny. You talk about, I'll just stop on this one point, but it's funny. And I've, I was talking to my parents about this because they didn't understand how a lot of my friends were Bernie Sanders supporters. Oh. And every single time Bernie pulls out, they always vote for Trump. And they're like, how the hell did you go from Bernie Sanders to Trump? They're like, besides them being older white guys, there's nothing in common. <laughs> one socialist, one's capitalist, one does whatever the hell they want. But I'm like, if you're attracted to a person that speaks with confidence, that does not feel like they can be bought, and you're screaming and is basically hated by everyone, if you're attracted by that personality, they're the same two people. Right. But like that's the weird thing we're talking about when people say something with confidence, like Bernie Sanders – for the most part, knows what he's talking about. Sometimes he even says things that, like here in the UK, people are like, "What the hell is he saying?" Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, but, it's 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 impressive to watch human behavior, and it will it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. Um, but yeah, I'm not betting on the states right now. Like, <laughs> yeah, my money's on New Zealand. Like, they, I think they're going to take over the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, their prime minister just said this. She's very very charismatic, and people love her. So. Well, that's the scary thing about like living here in Scotland is because we have like Boris Johnson, but we have Nicola Sturgeon. She did something I've never seen like a, a politician do in my life. When someone asked her a question, she's like, oh, I don't have the answer for you. Let me go get the person that has the answer for you and brought them to the podium. I'm like, you can do that? <laughs> <laughs> you can admit that? There's leaders out there that admit that they don't know what they're like. Because she's like, I'm just here to lead a country. Like, I'm not the head expert in transportation or medicine. Like, my job is to manage the head experts in these. Exactly. And that that's that's the humility and what I want in American leadership. Well, I don't care if it's Democrat or Republican. If I I would vote for the person who admits that they don't they don't know everything. Honestly, at this point. But anyway, yeah. But I'll, I'll stop before we go into that third hour. <laughs> no, well, George, it's been an awesome conversation. It's been great to get to know you. Uh, I appreciate you coming on, man. This has been great. Oh, thanks. And I'll definitely have you on the rights and wrongs. Uh, just make sure to figure out what you want to speak about. Yeah, of course. Um, tell tell the people before we get off uh, where to find your podcast, how to get a, how to learn about it. Uh, so, Rights and Wrongs podcast, you can find it either at www.rightsandwrongspodcast.com or you can find it on Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, the whole entire list. Uh, just try and find me. There's a few others out there like Southern Rights and Wrongs. Is it me or Wrestling Rights and Wrongs? That's definitely not me. It's just <laughs> Rights and Wrongs podcast. Um, and if you want to learn about, we focus on buzzwords, you talk about misconceptions, but I don't just usually talk about military stuff. Police has been taking a lot of stuff. I just finished an episode with, it was a another two hour long conversation where me and a Royal Marine commando were talking uh, oh, wow. going back and forth about, cause he's a international, he studies here in Glasgow 
for international relations. So if you ever want to hear a leatherneck and a bootneck talk about <laughs> our perspectives of international relations from a military perspective, you can listen to that. Uh, but yeah, you can find me anywhere. If anyone's interested in being on my podcast, just email me at rightsandwrongspodcast at gmail.com. Awesome. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you, George. And uh, cheers to you. You are now my go-to uh, Scotland distillery guy. So if I need to find a limited edition, I'm going to hit you up. <laughs> uh, if, yeah, but well, one thing I was going to ask, what did you drink for your uh, whiskey tonight? Oh, I, I had I just I had a Lafroig 10, just simple, something simple. Uh, I had literally something out of like $10, which is just Queen Margaret and a little, but it's supposed to be the best in its class, so... Hey, you can't go wrong with scotch, in my opinion. I I, I love American whiskeys, but scotch has uh, has stolen my heart. So, yeah, just if you ever move to Scotland, though, they still conceive that American beers are bad. Yeah, well, but they still. But the truth is, they only think of Miller, Budweiser, and stuff like that. I, I miss some Yingling, to be honest. Oh, hey, no, listen. I so I <laughs> I I was born and raised in Milwaukee, so you know Miller PBR. High life, all that stuff. I, that was my that was my college go to, but I finally moved from uh, Wisconsin to a place that sells Yingling, and just in time for Yingling to now sign a deal with Molson Coors that makes Miller in Milwaukee. So Yingling is now being distributed in 2021 next year in other states. So it's like, well, great. Why did I move? <laughs> no, I know. I understand what you're talking about because Yingling wasn't available in Massachusetts. My brother-in-law moved. He's from New York, grew up drinking Yingling his entire life. He moved to Massachusetts the year Yingling was going there. And he had Yingling. It's like, everyone's like, what the hell is that? It's like, it's Yingling. It's like, <laughs> this, this is Sam Adams territory. Like, what, what right. are you drinking? <laughs> right. Oh, Yingling is so good. Anyway. Uh, but thanks so much for having me on. This was actually an absolute pleasure. But I also need to get ready for because it's... 2 a.m. here in the UK. Yeah, I was gonna say you're you're the one. Uh, I'm 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 gonna go have some dinner. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Well, cheers, George. I appreciate it. Best well, to you. you, and I know we'll talk soon. Thanks. Thank you for joining the Kogan Conversation. Be sure to like, share, and follow us on all social media platforms. This podcast is available in video form on Facebook and YouTube, and audio on all platforms where podcasts are supported. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Just a few bucks a month can really help us grow. Visit us online at www.thekoganconvo.com for more details.